please turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, the 11th chapter. This is our final week in this pivotal 11th chapter. It closes out the first half of John's Gospel, what is often called the Book of Signs. And then there is a 12th chapter, which is sort of a hinge of this book. Uh, that bridges the book of signs and the book of glory that deals with Passion Week for our Lord. And so this morning we will be looking at verses 45 through 57 of John chapter 11 as we see the aftermath of Jesus' raising Lazarus from the dead. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. For the word of the Lord is completely inerrant. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient, and the word of the Lord is completely authoritative. John chapter 11, beginning at verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all. Nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, They made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim. And he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Lord, we ask this morning that you would attend your word by the power of your Holy Spirit. For your word is life to us. It tells us of the Lord Jesus Christ and his great work on our behalf. It tells us of your love for us. And it tells us of our need to believe in you. That we were made to worship you. And we can only be right with you through faith in Jesus Christ. So we pray this morning 
that you would work mightily in us and in our lives. We ask this in Christ's precious name. And all God's people said, Amen. There are only two types of people in the world. You may think there are all kinds of categories of people, that people can be categorized by age, or by nation, or by upbringing, or by gender, or by any number of other categories. But the reality of the world is such that there are only two categories of all people. Those who believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior, and those who do not. No matter what other categories we have about people, those two categories encompass everyone. And so this morning, we have a passage that teaches us about unbelief. It's an important passage for several reasons. It warns us of the dangers of unbelief. It reminds us that we need to examine ourselves That we are not found unbelieving, but that we trust the Lord Jesus Christ with our very souls. But it also helps us as we engage with others around us who do not know the gospel and do not know the Lord. So that we can properly understand the nature of unbelief and provide an appropriate solution. In a sense, this passage is a summary of what John has been telling us throughout all of this gospel. Why he wrote this gospel. He wrote it that you may believe. And so at the end of the book of signs, John confronts us with a choice. To believe in Jesus and follow him. Or to follow our own way. And to walk in darkness. This morning I'd like us to see three things from our passage. First, maybe this is a memorable turn of phrase. The unbelievability of unbelief. That unbelief itself is unbelievable. That someone would have this level of unbelief. But secondly, I want us to see the wickedness of unbelief. That unbelief does not remain static, that it leads to more and more wickedness. And then thirdly, we see the gospel shine through in the wonder of sovereign grace. The unbelievability of unbelief, the wickedness of unbelief, and the wonder of sovereign grace. Let's begin then by looking at the nature of unbelief and how it is Hard to comprehend, hard to believe, it is unbelievable itself. We, I think, need to begin by addressing some misconceptions that we may have about unbelief. Have you ever asked yourself, why do people not believe in Jesus? I mean, after all, even outside the church, even in our culture, Jesus has a good reputation. He's a kind person. He's a good teacher. He gives good advice. He helps people. He heals people. And you may wonder, why is someone hostile to Jesus? Why do they not believe in Jesus? Oftentimes, 
Our first answer is that unbelief is a result of a lack of evidence. If people just knew the facts about Jesus, if people were just given the evidence, that evidence to to borrow a title from a book demands a verdict. And if we just give enough evidence, people will inevitably come to believe in Jesus. And so oftentimes, our witness to the world is about facts from the Bible and telling them obscure details of prophecies that have come true or words and stories about Jesus so they can understand more about him. As if we fill people's heads with knowledge, they will inevitably come to believe in Jesus. But the problem is that unbelief is not the result of a lack of evidence. It's not an intellectual problem. We have seen this before in the Gospel of John. It is a moral problem. You've heard me say it before, but it bears repeating. Oftentimes when you are dealing with a skeptic, especially a young skeptic, who says, well, I just don't understand these things in the Bible. There are contradictions. There are difficulties. Often the best question to ask is, what immorality do you want to hold on to? Because that's where the skepticism comes from. It's a lack of a desire to submit to Jesus. I think sometimes we have a misconception about unbelief that it is a lack of understanding. That even if we present the evidence to someone, they need to understand it. They need to come to grips with it. And so we make all sorts of efforts to be as gentle and patient as we can. To be as winsome as we can. To give no offense at all. Even to the point of blunting some of the truth of God's word. Now, it is wise for us to be gentle as doves, as the Savior says. To be patient with others. To answer questions. But the world doesn't have a sufficient supply of patience and understanding to overcome unbelief. That's what the Bible makes clear. Then, in our modern day and age, there is a a third misconception about unbelief. That unbelief is a result of not seeing the relevance of the Bible. After all, the Bible is thousands of years old. Written by men in an undemocratic fashion. There was no polling taken as to which books would be included in the Bible. And that it's not relevant for our life. The Bible just doesn't fit into an iPhone-carrying, internet-using electric car driving culture. We need something new, something that speaks to us today. And so we need to find another fashion. But the truth is that if we pursue those avenues, we will not confront people with their unbelief. We will not give them the gospel. They will not see their need of reconciliation with God. Unbelief is a result of a hardness of heart. That's what John shows us, especially here this morning. We've seen it before, but here it is in vivid detail. Now, again, we have a situation that is not unique for the Gospel of John. Over and over again, people are confronted with Jesus and they divide. For example, at the Feast of Booths, there were some who thought he was a prophet. And others said he was a horrible man who was an evildoer and a lawbreaker. Some wanted to honor him. Others wanted him arrested. 
after he healed the blind man in John chapter 9. There were some who praised him for his work of healing, and there were others who attacked him and tried to have him arrested. So we have the same sort of situation here after the raising of Lazarus. What has happened? Let me refresh our memories. Many Jews had come from Jerusalem to mourn Lazarus' death with Mary and Martha. And when they came, they were not looking for a miracle. They didn't come looking for Jesus. They weren't sure they were going to be confronted with Jesus. They were what we might say in our modern day, unbiased witnesses. They just happened to be there. And they saw an absolute, irrefutable miracle. Lazarus had been dead for four days. There was no way he was faking it. The religion of the day said that the soul only hovered over the body for three days. You remember, Martha did not want to have the stone rolled away because she says it's been four days. His flesh is already rotting. This is no swoon. This is no nap. This is no trick. Not even Mary and Martha expected what happened. You remember they tried to dissuade our Lord from having the stone rolled away. But when the stone was rolled away, Lazarus walked out. He was still in his grave clothes, you will remember. He was bound up. He had to hop out of the tomb because he was bound in his grave clothes. And there was no explanation at all for what had happened except that Jesus had come. Jesus had prayed. And Jesus had called him forth. And what was their reaction to this irrefutable miracle? Well, John tells us in verse 45 that many of the Jews did believe in Jesus. And this is further proof, I think, of how impressive the miracle was. Many were brought to faith. But interestingly enough, some persisted in their unbelief. They didn't believe in Jesus. They didn't give him glory. They weren't thankful for what he had done. They didn't stay and rejoice with the family. Instead, some went to the Pharisees. They ran to them and tried to use what had happened to get Jesus into more trouble. Now, I want you to note something here from the text. They did not doubt what they saw. They didn't go to the Pharisees and try to find a natural solution for Lazarus coming out of the grave. They didn't discount what happened. They didn't say to the Pharisees, you're never going to believe the trick that Jesus played on everyone. That this man who was sick, they pretended he was dead and he came forth. No, they knew what Jesus had done. But they had already made their mind up about Jesus. And nothing not even a miracle, was going to change that. Now, why is that the case? You see, we tend to think of people as being rational, who weigh and balance all the evidence and then come to a conclusion. But the truth is, we are more a rationalizing people than a rational people. 
we have confirmation bias and we don't look at the evidence that disproves our conclusion. We see the lengths to which this has gone today. You can see people trying to argue with others that 2 plus 2 does indeed equal 4. And you can break out every form of mathematical proof. You could show in, in math, in engineering, you could show that the world would not exist as it is if 2 plus 2 could equal 5 sometimes and 4 sometimes. And yet people will just look you in the face and say, no, I don't believe that. Why? Because they have an assumption they've already made, a bias they've already taken in. We want the evidence to confirm what we already believe. Husbands and wives, you know that's true, don't you? I know that my wife could try to convince me of something that I've already decided in my mind until the cows come home. And it isn't until I can actually be proven wrong from the result that I might give in. This is a bias. This is how the modern world works. I'm describing for you social media. Now, I know this may burst your bubble, but the companies that run social media are not altruists. They don't do it for fun or for free. No, they do it to make money off people. And the way they make money off people is by feeding your bias. They know what you like, what you read, what articles you have, and they feed you more of that. It's an algorithm. Now, I'm not a computer scientist, but I can tell you that's true. So that if you think a certain thing, they will feed you opinions that confirm that over and over again. And we have a situation where someone says, you know, did you hear what happened? No. Well, this happened. No, it didn't. Yes, it did. Do you know how many people posted on my timeline saying it happened? Do you know how many articles there are on my timeline? Well, did you read the articles? No, but they're articles. <laughs> Do you know who wrote the articles? No. No, but they're articles. They're on the Internet, so it must be true. You know, now we've come to the day where artificial intelligence could be writing the articles. And you all know that even because the intelligence is artificial does not mean it is correct. So this is what we desire. This is who we are. And so the sum here had already decided that Jesus was a troublemaker. And, and this actually confirms for us what Jesus has said in this gospel already. Unbelief comes from a hardened heart, and unless God gives you a new heart, you don't want to believe. You won't believe. It's not that, that you need to be convinced to believe. You actively do not want to believe. You reject the gospel in Jesus. Jesus puts it this way in John 6. No one, now that's an absolute statement, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Jesus had done sign after sign after sign, and none of them were enough evidence. He had fed thousands. He had walked on water. He had healed the blind. He had healed the lame. He had raised the dead. And it still wasn't enough evidence. The sum still looked at him and said, 
mm, not really impressed. I think I'm still right. Now maybe you have already made up your mind about Jesus this morning. He's not for you. And you're thinking, as soon as I'm out on my own, free from my parents, then no more church for me. As soon as my spouse stops dragging me to church, then I can relax and not worry about church and not worry about this Jesus and don't need to be confronted by this yelling pastor. Maybe you're unwilling this morning to be confronted and to change your life because of Jesus' commands. You may say this morning, well, pastor, you know, if I saw a miracle, it would be different. But here we have proof that that's not the case. Unbelief is not rational. It's not a lack of evidence. It is hardness of heart and rebellion against God. But unbelief is not only hard to understand, it also leads to wickedness. And that's where we see the second thing from our text this morning, the wickedness of unbelief. We see this as the scene shifts to the gathering of the Jewish leaders. The some go to the Pharisees to report what Jesus has done. Now remember, we already know what the Pharisees' view of Jesus is. They're not going to the Pharisees to say, look, you'll never believe what wonderful thing Jesus has done. No, the leaders had already decided that Jesus was guilty. At the end of chapter 10, they had tried to arrest him. Jesus' disciples knew it was dangerous for Jesus even to be in Judea. And so the some who do not believe intentionally start with the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees were not a political party. They were not the authorities. Often we think of them as the ones who are in charge, but they were actually rather mostly the popular teachers and preachers of the day. They were the headlining speakers at all of the religious conferences. They were the ones who gave advice on how to live and how to interpret the Bible. They were the scribes. They were very well thought of. They were the experts. They were serious about religion. And so the Pharisees gather the chief priests and they come to a council. Now this council is the Sanhedrin. That is the group of elders who governed Israel under the Romans. You have to understand the way the Romans ran their empire was that they were over all of the nations they had conquered, but they used natives to run the day-to-day -day affairs. They didn't want to be the mayors of every little town. They wanted to be the governor who saw that all of the local mayors did what they wanted. And in the main, the Romans didn't care about much so long as there was peace and there was money coming in. They didn't need to get involved in the intricacies of religious disputes, or territorial disputes among tribes or peoples. And so the Sanhedrin governed Israel under Rome's purview. And so the Sanhedrin was made up of some Pharisees. They were a minority, an influential minority. But the majority of the Sanhedrin were the chief priests. 
you've heard them referred to before as the Sadducees. So the chief priests were often related by marriage or friendship to the high priest. They were brought in to govern by the high priest. And the high priest was over the entire council. Now, because the Sadducees were the politicians, they were in thick with the Romans. They wanted to please the Romans. They did what the Romans wanted. They worked with them. So that should give you an idea of how they related to the Pharisees, who hated the Romans, saw the Romans as being pagan idolaters. And so the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated each other, except when they were brought together by their mutual hatred of Jesus. And that's what we see here. The Sanhedrin comes together, and do you see what they're focused on in verse 47? They say, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. They say, what, what do we do now? We need to take some action here. Come on, come up with some things we can act on. There's a problem here in front of us. But what is the problem? Well, the problem is Jesus performs many signs. That's the problem. Now, note the consistency with what we've said before. They're not saying that Jesus is fooling the crowds. They're not saying that Jesus is a fake. They admit that Jesus is doing these miracles. The problem is that he is doing these miracles that cannot be proven false. If they could have proven the miracles false, there would have been no problem. They would have discredited Jesus. So they accept the fact that Jesus is performing these signs. So then, of course, the next question would be, why is that a problem? Why is it a problem that Jesus is going around healing people, feeding people, raising people from the dead? Well, the answer is given in verse 48. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. Wow. That would be horrible. They would actually believe in Jesus. But they go on. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. They're saying if we don't stop him, everyone's going to believe in him. And when that happens, the Romans are going to get upset. You see, the real reason for their objection is we will lose our power. These men are at the top of the food chain. They are running things, and Jesus is overturning all of that. They don't want the Romans to get involved. They don't want the people to start rallying in the streets behind Jesus, because then the Romans will crack down, and that would end the Sanhedrin's rule. That would put the Pharisees and the Sadducees on the sidelines. They had seen it before. And so, of course, they phrase their concern in broader terms. We're concerned for our nation. But what they mean is, as it exists now, they're really not any different than modern politicians. When was the last time you saw a modern politician advance a policy or a view that was against their own interests? I'll wait. 
Now, they will say, we have to do this, my, one of my favorites, for the children. Or for the country. Or for the economy. But it always just happens to magically line up with exactly what they want. And so, it's just words. And, and that's what they're doing here. They don't want to lose their power. They don't want to lose their authority. Jesus' miracles undermine their spiritual authority. It undermines their criticism of him. They're saying that Jesus is a lawbreaker, that he's a sinner. How could that be if by the power of God he's raising the dead? You see their dilemma. Now, I will say this to you. This is often how people around us react to the changed lives of believers. They don't like seeing your family changed or your marriage encouraged. They would rather your marriage was rotten so it makes them feel better about their rotten marriage. They would rather that your children are disrespectful because then that makes them feel better about their children. They would rather that you were lazy at work so that they could be lazy at work. You see, they don't like the way Jesus changes lives. And we need to understand that unbelief is not a neutral position. See, we can think there are those who believe in Jesus and love Jesus. And then there are those who hate Jesus and blaspheme against him. And then there's people in the middle who are neutral, who just don't know and don't believe. But the Bible doesn't understand that category at all. Unbelief is not an absence of evidence. It is a rejection of the truth in order to keep myself front and center. Unbelief is self-centeredness at its core. And you're seeing it in color with the Pharisees and the chief priests. All they can think about is themselves. Now, just when you think it can't get worse, the leader of the Sanhedrin steps up in verse 49. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now, Caiaphas was the high priest that year, but not only that year. He was a very savvy politician. He was actually high priest longer than almost any other high priest. And that was a difficult thing to do, because if the Roman governor didn't like something you did, guess what? You hit the bricks, and there was a new high priest. And so Caiaphas was known for being very politically savvy. And so he comes forward, and he'd be, he'd be a perfect politician for the age of Twitter. Because his opening statement is, you know nothing at all. You people are idiots. You're clueless. Do I need to do everything here? I mean, seriously, that's his attitude. And this is actually witnessed by accounts, extra biblical accounts from Josephus and others that especially the Sadducees and the chief priests and high priests spoke this way. There was no gentleness in them. And so he's not just upset like they are. He has a plan. Now, this is the way of the expert, isn't it? Sit down. Be quiet and let me handle things. You don't know what you're doing, so I'll take care of it. And don't even ask me 
how I'm taking care of it. If I had, I could never even explain this to you. You're so clueless, you wouldn't understand an explanation. That's what he's giving here. So what's his plan? He says, we need to kill Jesus. He's very upfront, very frank about it. There's no sugarcoating. There's no pretense. There's no euphemism. He doesn't say, wouldn't it be interesting if Jesus took a trip in Persia and wasn't seen again? Maybe we could see if Jesus could sleep with the fishes. No, he's very upfront. He needs to die. There's no missing what he's saying. He says the best thing to do is to get rid of Jesus and to do it quick. Now, stop and think about that for a moment. The chief religious leader in Israel is saying the best thing to do now is to arrest and murder someone who has been healing and helping people. Now, when we see why he says that, it's even more chilling. It's a simple calculation. Caiaphas says, it's better for Jesus to die than the whole nation to perish. And when he says better, that word means it's advantageous. It's expedient. It could even be translated with this word that I think you'll be familiar with. It is pragmatic. How many times have you heard those kinds of arguments? Caiaphas had done the math. But God didn't figure into his math. He only looked at the worldly powers around him, and that's how he came to his decision. He gave no thought to what Jesus was really doing. He gave no thought to the prophecies of the Old Testament. He gave no thought to what people really needed. This is the way of unbelief. Because unbelief is self-centered, it's blind to what is best. It's blind to what others need. We see this all the time in our society. One example would be the breakup of families. No one gives an analysis as to what would be best for the children, or best for the spouse, or best for the family. They only think about what will be best for them at that time. We see it in the decisions of our politicians. Whatever will promote them the most, whatever that will give them the most power. You see, rather than seeing what God is doing and seeking Him, they are looking for a pragmatic solution. And notice that there is no debate. There is no argument. No one says, now flesh this out a bit for me, Caiaphas. Why are we doing this again? It doesn't make sense to me. No. In verse 53, we see, from that day on, they made plans to put Him to death. Caiaphas was the high priest, and he should have feared God, but instead he feared the Romans, and he acted accordingly. Let me ask you, are you influenced by the world in how you live? Do you fear being unpopular at school, or having trouble at work? Or the sneers of people around you more than you fear God? Pragmatism is not the way to live. 
it is always the right time to do the right thing. You are not in charge of the results that come from doing the right thing. God is. You are merely called to be faithful to the Lord and His Word. That brings us to our final point. As we see God in control, we see the wonder of sovereign grace. John lifts back the veil for us so that we can see what is really happening. If we ended right now and you got out of the service a bit early, it would be discouraging. We've talked a lot about unbelief and the danger of unbelief and the, the wrong thinking of unbelief. But now John gives us a view of the gospel. Caiaphas spoke, but look with me at verse 51. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. God is always sovereign. God does not give up control during bad times. Now, there are some people out there who try and protect God by saying, God wasn't able to stop that hurricane. God wasn't present during that tornado. He was nowhere to be found in that school shooting. He was absent. And that's the problem. There's nothing God could have done to prevent that tragedy. But that doesn't protect God. And it doesn't comfort us. Because it shows us a God who doesn't care, a God who has no purpose, a God who has no ability, a God who can't protect us. And so when Caiaphas spoke, he spoke a truth that he did not even know. The language that he uses is very interesting. He says Jesus should die for the people. Now we've seen this little word for before. In the Greek, you've heard me mention it, it's the word huper. And it means on behalf of, in the place of, in the stead of. Jesus uses it himself in John 10 when he says, I lay down my life for, same word, the sheep. That little preposition is at the hinge of what we call the substitutionary atonement. That Jesus died on the cross for the sins of those who believe in him. That on the cross, our sins were placed on Christ and he paid the penalty for every lie, for every theft, for every act of violence, for every disobedience. Jesus paid the penalty. And Jesus' righteousness is placed on those who put their trust in him. And so we are found righteous in Christ. That's what the four means. It's a transaction it is a substitution. Caiaphas thinks he's analyzed the problem. He thinks Jesus could cause a rebellion and rouse the Romans up. And that would cause the nation to be destroyed. And so to prevent that, we have to kill Jesus. But God, in his providence, had come to the same answer that Jesus must die for a very different reason. Jesus had to die, not for politics, but for sin. 
Only the death of Jesus could save the people of God. And as always, God's view is even bigger than the view that Caiaphas expresses. It's not just to save Israel, but John tells us to, say, to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Jesus would die on behalf of his people everywhere. That includes the Gentiles all around the world, you and me. Do you see the irony here? The Father sent the Son to die not only for believing Jews, but for Romans who would believe. Is your view of God that big? To see that he's always in control. Even when others think he's not. Even when circumstances seem otherwise. You can always trust God because he never stops being sovereign. How wonderful is his sovereign grace that he even uses the plans of wicked men for his glory. There's also an irony here that warns us against trusting in men. What is Caiaphas's great concern? Well, it's that the temple, that is the place, and the nation would not be protected and would perish. And he's willing to put an innocent man to death to accomplish that. But his actions actually assured destruction. After they rejected the true Messiah, the Jews would follow after false messiahs. And after a few decades, they would revolt against the Romans. And they would be completely destroyed in 70 AD. The temple was obliterated. Nothing was left standing. The Jews were cast throughout the world and their nation would perish from the earth for millennia. This is a warning to us when we think we have everything figured out. Your calculus has to include God. You can't think about finances or children or family or relationships or anything apart from God. God is always in control. And we have to remember that. We also need to understand that God's time is not our time. We'll see that in the second half of this gospel, that God is in control of the calendar and the clock. The Jews, in verse 56, are standing around wondering what Jesus is going to do. Is he going to come to the feast? He always comes to the feast. But there's a warrant out for his arrest. What will he do? The chief priests and the Pharisees are plotting to bring about their plan in verse 57. If anyone hears about Jesus, tell us so we can arrest him. But Jesus is the one in charge. Look at verse 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to a region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. Jesus didn't do this because he was afraid. He was showing that the cross and his death would be his plan, in his timing, for his purpose. Every single one of you today is faced with a choice. You can believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, or you can not believe. 
What the Bible teaches you is that unbelief is a moral decision, not an intellectual one. If you are bored with Jesus, or don't think you need Jesus, or don't want to have your life affected by Jesus' words, then you need to know that there are consequences to that. Unbelief leads to self-centeredness and wickedness. It leads to hopelessness and loss. But faith in Jesus leads us to the God who loves us and gave himself for us. Believing in Jesus will not make your life perfect now. It will not solve every problem that is in front of you. But it does show you God's saving plan for not only the world, but for you. Let's pray.